Well, church, if you're new with us, uh, that's great stuff. Um, and also, if you're new with us, uh, we use our Bibles here. So if you've got your Bible with you, hope you do. We're in Genesis chapter 3. If you're new, you haven't missed too many episodes in our new series, The Gospel According to Genesis. Uh, so we're going to get there and we're going to take a peek at what's going on. Uh, each week in the first three episodes, we've covered a ton of ground. And some of you are probably going, Kevin, you're going much too fast. Uh, could you take a second and just slow down and maybe take a chapter and maybe take half of it? Well, I do have to confess, most weeks, the first three weeks, we have been water skiing. This morning, we're going scuba diving. So if you're uh, new with us and not sure about episode one. Episode one was where we walked through the chronologic creation account. It's found in Genesis chapter one. We saw Elohim. Elohim is the name of God, meaning our triune, our plural, our majestic, our sovereign, our creator God. And we watch him do the unimaginable. God created our world in six days. That's a pretty good work week. And he did everything. And when he got done with each day, he looked and said, it was good. But on the sixth day when he created mankind, he said, it was very good. And it says he did it all. He created it all for you. In episode two, we walked through the thematic creation of mankind. A picture elaborated on in Genesis chapter two. We saw that God made mankind in a very personal way. It said he, he, he got down low and he breathed breath into man. It's, the word there is ruah. I like that he ruah. Ruah, a, that means breath of God. He breathed the breath of God. So we, we see that he did this through his name, his name Yahweh, which means with you God, our personal, our present, our loving, our with you God. It was a beautiful picture of how we are created male and female in a very personal way. And then last week, episode three was sort of like hitting a brick wall at 90 miles an hour. Some of the beauty stopped because everything up until that point, things were so beautiful, so perfect, so majestic, and it all came to a screeching halt. Sin came flooding into this world, and it left us all sort of going, what happened? Kevin, what happened? It was such good news. It was such beautiful stuff, but how could this be? And if you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. At that very moment, we see the very first act of human disobedience in the Bible, and sin comes rushing into the world, just flooding into the world. And the catastrophic consequences of that moment cannot be overstated. I cannot impress on you enough the, the, the volume, the, the, how amazing and how abundant this just came in, these terrible, terrible consequences. And because of that, we live in a fallen world. We have a fallen creation. Mankind was removed from the garden, no longer in the presence of God, and now we live fallen in every way. You are fallen in your parenting. You are fallen in your marriage. You are fallen at work. And some of you are like, I know my coworkers are. You are, you are fallen in your neighborhood. We are fallen people. And it's here that, that, that violence and death and decay are birthed. 
It's right here that divorce and addiction, abuse and racism find their birth. It's right here that you find gluttony and lying and adultery and they all find their birth in our world and the effects are devastating. And so we're not just sinners by our deeds now. No, we are sinners by our very nature, our very DNA at the deepest level possible. We are corrupt from birth. And last week as we walked through the curses that arrived, it was very troubling, it was very disheartening to hear because we died spiritually. In Genesis chapter three, we are separated from a holy God, a God that loves us and created us, and now we have become slaves to sin. And Paul writes that we're dead in our trespasses. And so not only did we die spiritually, it says we died physically, instantly, the human body in all of its perfection and all of its beauty and in, in all of its glory began to deteriorate and decay. And I wondered how they knew that. Maybe because I was a former student ministries pastor, pastor I think it was the first pimple. They're like, what's that? You know, like, you know, you wonder, how did they know that the body now is decaying, is deteriorating? I wonder if they began to feel the aches and pains of life. And so they stand there and, and all that they thought was glorious is broken. The disease of sin, as we saw last week in Romans chapter three and Romans chapter five and Romans chapter eight, disease is now dropped on all of current humanity then and all of humanity that is to come. Our Bible says we are enemies of God and there is none righteous, not even one. We are literally hopeless and it's a horrific picture in Genesis chapter three. So many Christians today believe Salvation is maybe you standing on the edge of a lake, much like this picture. And you're looking out in the lake and you see somebody on the top of the water and they're flailing around. They're struggling. They're bobbing up and down and they're, 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 they're drowning. You know they're drowning and you've got a life preserver in your hand and if you would only throw them that life preserver, that act of grace, that act of mercy, they might respond and they would reach out to that thing that they know they need to save them and they would now be saved from the condition that they're in. Church, that picture is found nowhere in your Bible. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That picture is heresy. That is not mankind's condition before Jesus. Your condition is you're on the side of that lake, just like this picture. And you look out over the water and it looks just like this picture. Because there's no one on the top of the water struggling and flailing around. Oh no, you see nothing, why? because mankind would be at the bottom of the lake. Dead, dead, flipped upside down, decaying, gross, nasty. There's nothing in them that responds to God. And without God's intervention, his glorious and merciful intervention to breathe new life into them, there is nothing in them that yearns for God. There's nothing that responds to God because we are dead. And if you look back at your life, when you became a follower of Jesus and you come face to face, if you remember that day where you went, wow, the, this is the reality of my sin and this is a holy God. For some of you, that moment was like a light switch in your life. You were at church. You were at vacation Bible school. 
You were with one of your parents on the edge of your bed before going to sleep praying a prayer. Maybe for you, you were a teenager at camp and they were playing a guitar around a campfire. But you realized the magnitude of your sin and you realized the, the power and the presence of a holy God. Or maybe for some of you, it happened over a season. You recognized your, your deep sin and you recognized the holiness of God in 1978, 1994, during COVID, and it happened more like a sunrise for you. Either way, you began to realize that your best deeds before a holy God are nothing but filthy rags. That you were corrupt all the way down to your very nature. No one is born a Christian. I'm gonna say that again. No one is born a Christian. That's an unbiblical lie that's being told by Satan himself today and people are believing it. They're thinking that because my parents were Presbyterians and their parents were Presbyterians and I occasionally go to the Presbyterian church that I'm a Christian. No. Well, I go to church, my parents went to church, their parents went to church. No. That's not how it works. No one is a Christian because of their parents' faith. No one is a Christian because of an affiliation with a denomination. No one is a Christian because they've been baptized. No, a Christian is someone who realizes they are a sinner and they need a savior and you literally place your faith in the finished work of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ as your savior and your Lord and you've asked him to be the leader of your life. You've gotten off the throne and you've put him on it. That's how you become a Christian. And I think it's vitally important for us to know right here that Jesus coming to rescue us from our sin was not God's plan B. Okay, it's not like he was like, what? Well, I guess we'll have to come up with another plan because they screwed that one up. No, God ordained this plan with Jesus from eternity past. Jesus coming was not something that happened as a result of the fall. It's God's foreordained plan from the foundation of the world. I thought, have you ever watched a movie or have you ever watched a TV show and either the main character or the character that you really like died early in the series or movie and you're like, what? <laughs> For some of you, that was the movie Up. Ellie, the wife, dies. Like in two minutes in, you're like, what is going on? I liked her. Some of you, it was Littlefoot's mom in the land before time. For others of you in here, it's Ned Stark. And others of you in here, it's Sirius Black. I remember watching The Lord of the Rings for the very first time and watching Gandalf, this wise old wizard that's leading Frodo and Samwise Gamgee and all these folks to go destroy the ring. And then suddenly Gandalf dies. I hope you've seen it because I just spoiled it. <laughs> he dies and he's battling this horrific dragon figure. And while I'm watching it, I'm thinking, hey, Tolkien, what are you doing? You can't kill Gandalf. Like, how can you do that? How could, you, how could that be part of your plan? But what I didn't understand in the midst of watching that movie was that if Gandalf doesn't die, evil can never be defeated. I'm ruining this movie for you if you haven't seen it. It's still good, but I've given you plenty of time. It's been like 10 years or something. But Gandalf eventually, though, 
He comes back to life. And just as the unexpected and tragic death of the hero is part of J.R.R. Tolkien's plan in The Lord of the Rings, God also had a foreordained plan, whether you like it or not. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that he chose us, that's you and I, in him before the creation of the world. That, that before Genesis chapter 1 ever happened, God already had a plan to deal with sin. Let me tell you what didn't happen. The Trinity was not in heaven going, now what do we do? Paper, rock, scissors to see who dies for those fools. <laughs> Never happened. Never happened. That's not how any of this went down. No, I need you to think the show, The Mandalorian. This is the way. God knew as tragic as this event would be, this way is the better way. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the very first mention of the good news. Actually, look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. We'll start there. This is what it says. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And if you remember from last week, it's right here that 10 plus curses just sort of flood in. And then God says in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God says, I'm going to put hostility and tension here. I want you to think of it like throwing a rock into a lake. There's an initial splash, and then there's ripples that go out from there. In this text, this promise from God is both a splash and it has ripple effects. Some people look at this verse and will suggest that this passage explains why people today are fearful of snakes. I'll say it in the live stream. That's just stupid, okay? I wasn't going to say that on this. My wife told me not to say that. That's just dumb. That really is dumb. That makes no sense. That's not what this means at all. Other people look at this and suggest that what happens is that Satan has an offspring, and those offsprings are, are demons, and that Eve has offspring, which is mankind, and that they're going to be fighting each other back and forth. The problem is that's wrong. Like, that doesn't make any sense either because Satan does not become the father of demons. In fact, all demons were once angels, just like Satan, and they were removed from heaven in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, which we looked at last week. In fact, a third of the angelic realm chose Team Satan. So when they, when they got kicked out, they all got kicked out together, a third of the angelic realm. So this idea that this offspring is somehow demons doesn't make any sense either. What's happening is the serpent's offspring would be those in humanity who are rebellious or in a state of rebellion against God and who stay in that state. And Eve's offspring would be those who love and ultimately obey God. There will be a tension and a hostility between these two groups until the very end. You see that today. Is there anyone today where people who follow Christ are in tension or in conflict with those who reject Christ. Is that happening anywhere? Yeah, it gets its roots right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But the glorious part of the text is where it says he, 
says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Again, God is speaking to Satan. So God names two individuals. There's a he and there's a you. And we know who the you is. It's Satan because he's talking to Satan. And so what do we know about this he? Well, according to this verse, there's going to be a collision. That's what it means. There's going to be a collision, a battle, a bruising, and a crushing. The word here actually gets translated for all the Seinfeld fans in the room. It actually gets translated death blow, right? That this is a death blow. That's what that word means. And what's interesting is the same word for this he is the same word that's used for Satan, meaning both Satan and this he, both of them, will be dealt a death blow. Both blows are fatal. Both Satan and this he will die in this interaction, in this battle. And despite Satan's apparent victory in mankind's fall, he is destined actually to defeat. He's defeated, he's defeated one time here, but doesn't realize it. And, and then he gets defeated again. And then in Revelation, he gets defeated again. But what you also see here is this happens, according to this, by the hands of a singular male who comes from the seed or the offspring of Eve and will deal a death blow to the head of Satan, but he will die in the process. This is why we scuba dive sometimes and don't just water ski. Friends, we have the beauty of hindsight. You and I know who this he is. We know. We know that Jesus came and lived the life that I couldn't live. We know that he came and died the death that I should have died. That he went to Calvary where Jesus once and for all forever took our sins on his back and died to pay its penalty. He paid to ransom us from the slavery we were in to sin. And then he rose again proving as a fact that spiritual death and physical death are forever defeated. Amen. It's beautiful stuff. Now, in the context of Genesis chapter 3, did Adam and Eve understand that this verse referred to Jesus Christ? No. God is revealing this in kind of a mist. It's kind of a fog, a mist that will get clearer and clearer with every page you turn. It gets clearer and clearer until finally, in the opening pages of the New Testament, the fog, the, the mist is just blown away. And it becomes crystal clear. And so... Adam and Eve didn't have the gift of hindsight that you and I have. They're simply responding to the truth that God gave them, which is why I believe that God, in this moment, gives Adam the privilege to name Eve. And the name Eve means life. That's the actual translation of the name Eve, life. And what Adam is saying is, I believe that the promised rescue that God is speaking about here in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, will indeed come in the midst of mankind's rebellion. God will somehow bring life out of death. So the question then becomes, well, how does this happen? Does God give us any indication here in the book of Genesis as to how life will come from death? Well, he does. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. There's another hint in the mists of the fog. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. 
So at this point, the disobedience has happened. When you get to 21, the disobedience has happened, the lying has happened, the blaming of the woman, the blaming of God, the blaming of Satan has all happened. The curses have now all come in. The hiding from God has happened. They've even sewed the fig leaves together to cover their their private parts for they know that they have violated the heart of God. They know that they violated the will of God. And so they, they sewed these leaves together to cover themselves in order to heal their afflictions. They sew it thinking that this will cover my sin. And in this moment, God's saying, there is something far deeper going on here than the, just the covering of your physical bodies. There is something more significant happening that we need to take care of. And your man-made attempts won't heal what ails you. And so the Lord God made garments of skin for them. Now the the text doesn't doesn't elaborate on how we got here, but, but I can read between the lines a little bit and so can you. What did God need to do in order to provide garments of skin for Adam and Eve? Did the animals have to donate them? Right? Animals don't donate skin. We donate clothes to goodwill. Animals don't donate skins. In order to get a covering from an animal, an animal had to die. And so in the Garden of Eden, at this point, no animal that we know of has ever died, ever died. And God had Adam and Eve remove their self-righteous man-made attempts to cover their sin. And they stood there and watched as God took the life of an innocent animal on their behalf. That is unimaginable for them. They had no idea what was happening. The screams of the animal as it dies, they stood there and they watched it happen. They watched an innocent animal shed its blood so a covering could be made for their nakedness in order to save them. Only my provision for sin is acceptable, God says. You can't cover your sin with religion. You can't cover it with your own works. Only I can do it for you. And so it has been from this point all the way to this point, life for life, God will make a provision for sin forevermore. Church, this concept is called atonement. And atonement literally means the act of removing something from view by placing something between me and the viewer. So some of us go, well, Kevin, we know you like key lime pie, especially Marilou's key lime pie, and you eat a lot of it, which is true. And so you're gonna atone for your pie eating by putting it in the fridge, no. Or you're gonna put a towel over it to remove it from your view, no. That's not what it means. God's atoning attribute, or the thing that he uses to atone, is blood and blood alone. In fact, listen to Leviticus 17. God says, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Author of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews 9. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, here's how the Hebrew mind would have seen this because we have Western minds. We think lists. 
We think concrete thoughts. We, we think things like uh, definitions, but what we can see and feel and rational thought. But the Eastern mind, that's not how they think. They think in terms of word pictures or illustrations or stories or concepts that help bring picture into reality. So your entire Old Testament is the story, is a picture of the atonement. If, if you think about that for a moment, in the book of Exodus, God gives the law to Moses. A lot of Christians think, yeah, he gave the law, he gave the Big Ten. Well, no, he gave 613. So your Big Ten is cute and all, but there's 613 he's given. Now, 248 things they're told to do, and 365 things, one for every day of the year, you're told not to do. And the natural question in Exodus then is, well, what happens when we violate those? What do we do when we break one of the commands of God? What happens when we do what we're not supposed to do? Or what if we don't do what we're supposed to do? And God says, I'm so glad you ask. I'm going to give you the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus 1 through 7, each chapter will give you different ways to atone for this. God's saying, when you violate these laws, you need to make atonement. And here's how you are to do that. And so whether it's the feast and festival schedule of the nation of Israel, it revolves around this same concept. Think about the Passover. Passover, they take the blood of the lamb, they paint it on the doorpost. It stands between them and the angel's wrath, and the angel passes over. Think about Yom Kippur. That actually means, if you've heard someone say Yom Kippur, that means the Day of Atonement. That's what that's translated it's found in Leviticus 16. A priest would take the blood of an innocent goat, place it on top of the altar inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of the temple of the atonement seat that sat on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant to cover the sin of the people. What did a holy God see? Between the broken law and himself, God saw the shed blood of an animal that was put on top of that Ark. Their sin was atoned for on that day by the shed of blood of an innocent animal. You're gonna see that over and over and over again in your Old Testament. But the problem was, as you can figure out now is, that's a lot of blood. That's pretty nasty. And that's supposed to happen year after year after year after year. There was no permanent solution to sin. In fact, listen to what Hebrews chapter 10 says. It says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for all sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. And so what Genesis chapter three, verse 15 is speaking to is that one day, church, one day, there will be a day that you won't need to offer an innocent lamb. You won't need to offer a bull, a dove, grain offerings or whatever to make atonement for your sins. We will have a once and for all perfect lamb provided by God himself that he will willingly lay down his life. He will freely lay down his life for you. You're killing me. You're killing me. Yes, that is such an amen moment that he freely and willingly laid it down for you. I shouldn't say you're killing me. I love you guys. <laughs> but I do wonder, oh, listen to what uh, is written in John chapter one. 
It says, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me, who's born after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. He existed long before me. I myself did not know him, but the reasons I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Church, I wonder when this he was announced what she thought. I think she thought, my son is the he. And then when he wasn't, because we know the story, she's like, I wonder if my grandson is the he. I wonder if my great, my great, 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 my great, 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 and just keep going down until she realized, no. And with each year that passed, with each generation that passed, their understanding grew of who this he would be. And with each page that we turn, our understanding begins to, to grow of just who our God actually is. With each page in your Old Testament, so many people think they see angry God. No, what, what you should see is the love of God. With every page that you turn in the Old Testament, it's the provision of God. With every page that turns, so many of you, about 250 of you, I think, are in Exodus right now, and there's probably another 150 of you right now that are in uh, numbers with me, and, and it talks about stiff-necked people. Tell me every page isn't the patience of God. I'd have zapped them people a long time ago until I realized that those people are me. And on every page, I see the grace of God, the mercy of God. With every page that turns, I see just how far our God is willing to go to lead us and to guide us and to be with us. With every page that turns, we see the magnitude of sin in this world, the depth of its brokenness and horrors and of sinful mankind. With every page, we see that God's willing to place the penalty of it all on his son, and willingly die on our behalf for it all. Second Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every page of your Old Testament cries out to his forgiveness of sin. It cries out about his justification for us, his redemption of us, his repurposing of us. It, it shouts of him freeing us from bondage to Satan and, and bondage to sin, breaking those chains forever. Hallelujah. Your Bible is the story of God bridging the greatest gap in all of human history, dying a horrific death on a cross in order to pay the ransom for you and me. And so we could be freely bound to him forever. And it all came through a cross, giving us the privilege of being called sons and daughters of the most high God once again. This he will give us full access to God, not through some curtain once a year we've got to peek in, not through some priest who I have to pray to and hope they take my prayers to God. The veil that separated us from a holy God has been torn down and we will forever have access to him. We have been justified, literally declared righteous in his sights. For those of you in this room who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, when God sees you, he does not see a sinner. 
When God sees you, he does not see a sinner because our sin was paid for. He sees us as pure as driven snow that we are declared righteous and justified in his sight because of this he. Church, as you think about the awfulness and the horrors and the chaos of the fall and what it did, never forget at that moment a promise was issued that he would pursue you. A promise was issued that he would redeem you, adopt you, reconcile you, and forgive you, and set you free by a God who loves you and lays his life down for you. As horrible as Genesis chapter 3 was and is, the good news that was delivered in the Garden of Eden so many years ago is still the greatest news that we've ever heard and will ever know. So many Christians ask me, how are people in the Old Testament saved? The same way you are. We place our faith in a he that has come. We know him as Jesus Christ. The Old Testament places their faith in a he that is to come. They don't know his name. They know what his attributes are. They know what he looks like. Salvation is only one way, through Christ and Christ alone. Old Testament, New Testament. And so church, as we close, never, ever, ever forget that sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. We have this really way, weird way of saying, my sin, not such a big deal. Yes, it is. We've termed things white lies, right? How many white lies is like four quarters and a dollar? How many like white lies until it's like a real lie? Like, that's not how it works. Your white lie required heaven's best to die. Do you realize that? It's a big deal. Every sin requires the death of an innocent. It's a big deal, big or small. And so, Sin is a big deal in your marriage. Sin is a big deal in your parenting. Sin is a big deal for you at work. Sin is a big deal in your family, in your neighborhood, as you drive your car, wherever you live, learn, work, and play. Sin is a big deal because it required heaven's absolute best to pay for it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became the he that we never could so that our treason would be paid for and we would no longer be separated from our God. We have the privilege of looking back at the beauty of the cross, but Adam and Eve lived and waited in anticipation, looking for the he that was to come. Adam and Eve having faith in a he that is to come in us this very day, having a faith in the he that has come. The he of Genesis chapter three has come. And if this doesn't move you to a place of worship, wonder, and awe, you don't have a pulse. If this doesn't move you to a place of, of gratitude and praise and thankfulness, I, we need to talk. You've got issues because I'm not sure what will then. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has everlasting life.